Section two of Bird Stories from Burroughs by John Burroughs. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Sandra. Bird Stories from Burroughs by John Burroughs. Section two. The Robin. Not long after the bluebird comes the robin. In large numbers they scour the fields and groves. You hear their piping in the meadow, in the pasture, on the hillside. Walk in the woods and the dry leaves rustle with the whir of their wings. The air is vocal with their cheery call. In excess of joy and vivacity, they run, leap, scream, chase each other through the air diving and sweeping among the trees with perilous rapidity. In that free, fascinating, half-work and half-play pursuit, sugar-making, a pursuit which still lingers in many parts of New York, as in New England, the robin is one's constant companion. When the day is sunny and the ground bare, you meet him at all points and hear him at all hours. At sunset, on the tops of the tall maples, with look heavenward, and in a spirit of utter abandonment he carols his simple strain. And sitting thus amid the stark silent trees, above the wet cold earth, with the chill of winter still in the air, there is no fitter or sweeter songster in the whole round year. It is in keeping with the scene and the occasion. How round and genuine the notes are, and how eagerly our ears drink them in. The first utterance and the spell of winter is thoroughly broken, and the remembrance of it afar off. One of the most graceful of warriors is the robin. I know few prettier sights than two males challenging and curveting about each other upon the grass in early spring. Their attentions to each other are so courteous and restrained. In alternate curves and graceful sallies, they pursue and circumvent each other. First, one hops a few feet, then the other, each one standing erect in true military style, while his fellow passes him and describes the segment of an ellipse about him, both uttering the while a fine, complacent warble in a high but suppressed key. Are they lovers or enemies, the beholder wonders, until they make a spring and are beak to beak in the twinkling of an eye, and perhaps mount a few feet into the air, but rarely actually deliver blows upon each other. Every thrust is parried, every movement met. They follow each other with dignified composure about the fields or lawn, into trees and upon the ground, with plumage slightly spread, breasts glowing, their lisping shrill war-song just audible. It forms on the whole the most civil and high-bred tilt to be witnessed during the season. In the latter half of April, we pass through what I call the Robin Racket, trains of three or four birds rushing pell-mell over the lawn and fetching up in a tree or bush, or occasionally upon the ground, 
all piping and screaming at the top of their voices, but whether in mirth or anger, it is hard to tell. The nucleus of the train is a female. One cannot see that the males in pursuit of her are rivals. It seems rather as if they had united to hustle her out of the place. But somehow the matches are no doubt made and sealed during these mad rushes. Maybe the female shouts out to her suitors, Who touches me first wins? And away she scurries like an arrow. The males shout out, Agreed! And away they go in pursuit, each trying to outdo the other. The game is a brief one. Before one can get the clue to it, the party has dispersed. The first year of my cabin life, a pair of robins attempted to build a nest upon the round timber that forms the plate under my porch roof, but it was a poor place to build in. It took nearly a week's time and caused the birds a great waste of labour to find this out. The coarse material they brought for the foundation would not bed well upon the rounded surface of the timber, and every vagrant breeze that came along swept it off. My porch was kept littered with twigs and weed stalks for days, till finally the birds abandoned the undertaking. The next season a wiser or more experienced pair made the attempt again and succeeded. They placed the nest against the rafter where it joins the plate. They used mud from the start to level up with and to hold the first twigs and straws and had soon completed a firm, shapely structure. When the young were about ready to fly, it was interesting to note that there was apparently an older and a younger, as in most families. One bird was more advanced than any of the others. Had the parent birds intentionally stimulated it with extra quantities of food, so as to be able to launch their offspring into the world one at a time? At any rate, one of the birds was ready to leave the nest a day and a half before any of the others. I happened to be looking at it when the first impulse to get outside the nest seemed to seize it. Its parents were encouraging it with calls and assurances from some rocks a few yards away. It answered their calls in vigorous strident tones. Then it climbed over the edge of the nest upon the plate took a few steps forward, then a few more, till it was a yard from the nest and near the end of the timber and could look off into free space. Its parents apparently shouted, Come on! But its courage was not quite equal to the leap. It looked around, and seeing how far it was from home, scampered back to the nest and climbed into it like a frightened child. It had made its first journey into the world, but the home tie had brought it quickly back. A few hours afterward it journeyed to the end of the plate again, and then turned and rushed back. The third time its heart was braver, its wings stronger, and leaping into the air with a shout, it flew easily to some rocks a dozen or more yards away. Each of the young in succession, at intervals of nearly a day, left the nest in this manner. There would be the first journey of a few feet along the plate, the first sudden panic at being so far from home, the rush back, a second, 
and perhaps a third attempt, and then the irrevocable leap into the air and a clamorous flight to a nearby bush or rock. Young birds never go back when they have once taken flight. The first free flap of the wings severs forever the ties that bind them to home. I recently observed a robin boring for grubs in a country dooryard. It is a common enough sight to witness one seize an angle worm and drag it from its burrow in the turf, but I am not sure that I ever before saw one drill for grubs and bring the big white morsel to the surface. The robin I am speaking of had a nest of young in a maple nearby, and she worked the neighbourhood very industriously for food. She would run along over the short grass after the manner of robins, stopping every few feet, her form stiff and erect. Now and then she would suddenly bend her head toward the ground and bring eye or ear for a moment to bear intently upon it. Then she would spring to boring the turf vigorously with her bill, changing her attitude at each stroke, alert and watchful, throwing up the grass roots and little jets of soil, stabbing deeper and deeper, growing every moment more and more excited, till finally a fat grub was seized and brought forth. Time after time during several days, I saw her mine for grubs in this way and drag them forth. How did she know where to drill? The insect was in every case an inch below the surface. Did she hear it gnawing the roots of the grasses, or did she see a movement in the turf beneath which the grub was at work? I know not. I only know that she struck her game unerringly each time. Only twice did I see her make a few thrusts and then desist, as if she had been, for the moment, deceived. End of section two.